Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayrick, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, as the name of the podcast implies, we like to talk about what's going up in price. And lately, that's been energy prices. And obviously, that has potentially huge implications for the economic rebound and the values of stocks and other assets. We'll get into it with an expert on the global energy industry. And, uh, you know, Viltana, as journalists, our instinct is always to find some of the smartest people we can to explain the world to us. Luckily, we didn't have to go too far this time. Yeah, we're very fortunate. We're joined this week by Javier Blas. He's a Bloomberg columnist, and he's the author of The World for Sale. Javier, I want to welcome you to the show. Hello, and great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for, for doing this, Javier. We know you must be busy this week. Javier, obviously, this story has so many different facets to it. I actually wanted to just take a brief step back and and have you maybe lay out what exactly all is going on and what you're watching. Obviously, earlier this week, we had news of the U.S. and the U.K. imposing certain bans on on Russian oil imports. So maybe just lay out for our audience, what are you watching, what all is happening, and potentially maybe even, you know, what's the one next thing that you're looking for? So we can just basically go about two weeks ago, and the oil market was already quite tight. The recovery from COVID-19 had been stronger than expected. Demand here in Europe was really booming. The same thing was happening in the United States, where demand in January probably was the best January ever for oil consumption. Everyone kind of came back from Christmas, uh, COVID was improving, and, and, and things started to look quite good in terms of consumption. So that was the kind of the demand side of the market. The supply side was quite tight. We have a couple of years of very low prices. I mean, remember, two years ago, we were talking about negative prices at some point in, for West Texas Intermediate, that is the, the American crude oil benchmark. So companies have not been investing a lot, and, and supply was struggling. And then the oil cartel with Saudi Arabia, Russia, and other countries were really keeping the, the, the market under control. So things were looking quite high and prices were rising. And then Russia launched the invasion of Ukraine. And Russia is the world's third largest oil producer, the second largest oil exporter only behind Saudi Arabia. And what happened immediately was the market prepared for the worst case scenario, a complete cutoff of supplies from Russia. These are millions of barrels of oil. Just to put a few numbers, Russia exports about 8 million barrels a day between crude oil and refined products. That is 
that's quite a lot. That will be enough to supply the whole of Germany, France, the UK, Spain, and Italy together. And you will still have a bit of extra barrels to supply another smaller European country. What happened was the fear of sanctions. We didn't have at that point any official sanctions on Russia, but uh, companies were fearing that that was coming and they started to take actions themselves. They, they boycott Russian oil. They impose what we call in the oil market self-sanctions. Uh, that started to reduce the flow of Russian oil. Some companies started to announce that they were not going to buy any Russian oil. And then more recently, it was the United States, President Biden, and here in the UK, Prime Minister Johnson, who announced official bans. You cannot buy any Russian oil. And that really has tightened the, the, the supply picture significantly. And the market will just, well, it, it went up quite a lot. We touched $139 a barrel, which is just under the peak, that the record all-time high, that we said um, in 2008, that was $147. And then the market really started to think, okay, what if it's a complete shutdown of Russian oil exports? Can we, can we manage? And many people were, well, if that happened, that really, it's very difficult to manage. And we're going to see $200, $250. So analysts and traders were starting to really put very high numbers. But at the same time, these very high oil prices are beginning to have an impact on the expectations of economic growth. We may have a recession here in Europe. And that's what, at the same time, that's capping the price. So you have the two pressures, and the market is trying to, to find out how it's going to play out in the next few months. But at the end of the day, what everyone is looking, every oil trader is looking, is the war in Ukraine. You know, but Javier, I was thinking back to when I was a kid and um, you know, don't let my boyish looks fool you, but I was actually a kid in the 1970s. And I remember 1979 after the Iranian revolution, uh, I picked up the I was a paper boy and I picked up our local newspaper and there on the front page was a picture of my best friend's mom. You know, it was the 70s. So she had her bell bottoms on and smoking a cigarette and she was sitting on a patch of grass outside of a gas station. And, and obviously, the story was about the gas shortages that the U.S. experienced back then. And I'm thinking now, uh, you know, a, a rise in prices is, is one thing for the economy. It's, it's obviously going to be a headwind for the economy. But I'm, I'm starting to worry about actual shortages. So I'm curious how you're thinking about the potential for, for shortages, whether it be in the U.S. and Europe, sort of where we might look for those first, what what kind of products might be in short supply first? I'm reading about potentially um, European factories that won't be able to keep operating if, if energy prices get too high. How are you thinking about the potential for shortages and, and where would you look for, for it first? Well, what we are seeing at the moment for, for now is, is a huge price increase. I mean, a few days ago, we were about $100 a barrel for oil and we went almost up to 140 in, in a matter of just a few days. It has come down just a bit, so whatever goes up also sometimes comes down. But if we think about physical shortages, uh, we, we have not yet seen them, but there are certain corners of the energy market that start to look extremely tight. 
And as time goes, that's where we can see some of the shortages. I'm thinking in particular about diesel uh, in Europe, which is very, very tight. And we rely quite a lot on diesel imported from Russia, from Russian refineries. That market is quite tight at the moment. And I would not be surprised if the conflict in Ukraine continues, that we may see at some point that uh, there are actual shortages. We have seen already some refineries in uh, in Central Europe, Northwestern Europe, starting to impose caps on the amount of uh, diesel that they are selling to their distributors. So it's beginning to be quite real, but um, it has not yet happened at the retail level, and I, I think it will take a bit more time to that to emerge. And who would be the customers most affected there? I'm guessing truck trucking firms, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, diesel is mostly about trucking. I mean, uh, diesel is also very much consumed in certain European countries, as as uh, because the, the the car fleet is is very much on on diesel. Countries like like uh, France, and you know, it used to be also the case here where I am in the United Kingdom. But it's it's the trucking industry which is going to suffer the most. And the problem with that is that it means that everyone suffers because we transport everything. Trucking is, is the backbone of our economy. So if if truckers have to pay and the trucking companies have to pay a lot more for the diesel, that means everything that we buy on the supermarket is going to be more expensive because they, they're going to pass the, the cost increase. So we can see quite a lot of uh, inflation in you know supermarkets, grocery shopping uh, here in Europe, for sure. So Javier, um, and for listeners, uh, whenever you're listening to this, we're actually speaking today. It's Wednesday, uh, March 9th, and there was a big drop in oil prices today. Part of the reason uh, people are pointing to is that there are some signals that some producers, uh, United Arab Emirates and uh, Iraq might uh, you know, start producing more to try to make up for some of the, the lost Russian supply. How do you think about sort of the whole geopolitics of oil right now, the relationships between Russia and the rest of the big exporting countries? I mean, I, I get the the impression that um, Russia has a pretty significant influence on OPEC uh, in general these days. H how are, do all the geopolitics fit together as far as whether we can expect some other countries to, to pick up the, the lost supply? Mike, you are absolutely right, and this is where it really gets very interesting from the mix of politics and oil, because for many years, Russia was almost an enemy of OPEC. They didn't talk. Uh, Russia was completely independent, um, and they were at times fighting. The, 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 the OPEC group and Russia will see the oil market completely different. That changed about three years ago, where Russia and Saudi Arabia decided to work together in the oil market. And that led to the creation of a new group that we call OPEC Plus. And the plus is mostly Russia. There are other few countries, but the plus is Russia. All of a sudden, after fighting for so many years, Riyadh and Moscow were really working together in the oil market. And now we have this tension because in another situation, typically what the White House will have done was go to Saudi Arabia, Ask the Saudis, please, can you increase production? It's $120, $130 a barrel. And the Saudis most likely will have delivered because 
they are not really interested. They are always, the Saudis want high prices, but they don't really want super high prices that trigger a lot of inflation and potentially an economic recession. If you are selling oil, you really want a healthy economy. And, and these prices are not good for a healthy economy. But now it's different. The Saudis and the Russians are working together. And the last thing I, I believe that Saudi Arabia wants is up, upset Vladimir Putin. Uh, it has been very interesting that through this conflict, Vladimir Putin has been talking to Mohammed bin Salman, who is the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and they have been talking about energy and energy cooperation. So I think that OPEC may not come to the rescue this time just because they are w just working with the Russians. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The geopolitics of this, to me, are incredibly interesting. And, and I want to ask you to actually bring in two other players, which is Venezuela and Iran, because there's talks potentially of some of their oil supplies also coming online and potentially helping to offset some of the squeeze that we're seeing. And that is also the other hugely interesting side of the geopolitics. We have sanctions on already two other countries, as you mentioned, Iran and Venezuela. On Venezuela is mostly linked to the repression of the regime of Maduro against the opposition. In the case of Iran, it's about the nuclear program. So now the United States is working to try to see if they can reach some kind of agreement with both countries that can resolve the outstanding political issues, the national security issues, and then that will mean the return of oil from both countries. And that could be quite significant. Iran, if there was a nuclear deal, probably can put on the market between half a million and 600,000 barrels a day quite quickly, and then going perhaps to about a million barrels a day within one year. Venezuela is less clear, but perhaps can put a few hundred thousand extra, uh, a few hundred thousand barrels a day extra into the market. But when you are in a very tight situation, and I'm fearing that you may lose quite a lot of supply from, from Russia, that will be extremely helpful. But it gets very complicated for the White House because now both Venezuela and Iran knows that the United States really wants to reach a deal. So you don't have... Or in a negotiation table, the last thing that you want on the other side of the table is that the other, that you know, they know that you are in a bit of a weak position. So it's it just getting extremely interesting to observe. And that's the other thing that the oil market is looking. So it's this massive kind of four-dimensional geopolitical chess on oil with Russia, the Saudis, Iran, Venezuela, and the White House. Right. And then here in the U.S., Javier, obviously, domestically, it's a huge political football, as we say. Um, yeah, I remember a few years ago when oil prices w were crashing, there was a lot of talk about, well, what is sort of the break even uh, price for oil to make a lot of the, the fracking 
projects in the U.S. economically viable. I have to assume at over $100 a barrel, basically every project in the U.S. is is viable now. Um, but there is a lot of debate about whether, you know, uh, Republicans claiming Biden is holding back production and the White House pushing back saying, well, there's 9,000 uh, approved uh, licenses that aren't being used. How do you see that all playing out? I mean, has the U.S. shale industry sort of been, you know, bitten once by by oversupply and and, and will be a little reluctant to to turn on the the spigots too much this time, or or is this price is so high that it, it it'll it'll be full steam ahead with all the U.S. projects? Mike, the, the price is so high that I think that you could go and drill on your backyard and if you find oil, <laughs> you, you, it, it, it will be profitable. I mean, it's a hundred and twenty, a hundred and ten dollars a barrel, it is more than enough for almost every project to make money. But the problem is the shale industry in the U.S. have gone through a really tough time. The last couple of years have been difficult. Uh, investors are unhappy. They are focusing on returns. They don't want companies to grow production because uh, they think that they will uh, flood the market and trigger another price collapse. And they really want just focus on pay down debt and deliver big dividends to us. Buybacks, dividends, that's the game in town. And that means that executives on the on the U.S. shale industry are very reluctant to increase production very fast. And then the whole industry feels under attack by the White House, the energy transition, the signaling from the Biden administration of a future that is going to be fossil fuel, more focus on solar, renewables, uh, electric vehicles. And they kind of feel that they are not to make any favors to the administration. So you have this tension uh, going on right now. And I, I think that both sides will find a compromise. Prices are high enough for anyone in the, the, the U.S. shale industry to make money. And I think that the administration, the Biden administration, at some point is going to realize that it has a big asset at home that uh, provides security, can produce oil, and it will find a way just to kind of work together with, with the industry. I'm really curious if maybe you can give us a time frame of how quickly... U.S. supplies could come online. I, I, I'm, you know, we hear and, and read all of these different stories, but what I'm uncertain of is how quickly any of this can actually come online. Even with the case for Iran or Venezuela, I'm hearing months or even, you know, late, way down later this year. So, what do the timeframes actually look like? So, uh, in the case of Iran and Venezuela, it very much depends. You need a political agreement with those countries, and it just we don't know when when that was going to be achieved. Uh, we we previously thought that there was a firm deadline, a, a red line of last week for a Iranian deal that 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 ended, and we we still are observing the conversations and the negotiations continuing. So we don't really know when that's going to happen. And if there is a deal, it's going to take probably a couple of months before any extra oil could come from, from Iran. Venezuela is even more complicated. The, the conversations have just started. And I don't think that we are about to see a, a production increase in Venezuela. Also a country that, first of all, will need to make investments on, on his industry to grow. And then in the U.S., the shale industry, we, we call shale in, in oil short cycle because it can't really go faster than the traditional big big projects of, of big oil, which used to take five or six years from finding the oil to, to kind of starting production. But short in, in oil means actually several months. It's not a few days. And it's a bit more complicated than just, you know, the flick of a switch. It, it just, the companies need to drill, they need to find workers. And 
it's not very different to the rest of the American economy. Uh, workers are in short supply. They move away from shale. They, they went somewhere else to work. Um, they are making more money than they were making back, you know, uh, when they were working in Texas. So they don't really want to go back. And, and in general, the industry is finding that they have a lot of supply chains that is affecting other parts of the economy. And they are also suffering them. So what executives are telling me is, look, uh, it's a hundred dollars plus oil. We'll drill more. We'll try to increase production. But don't expect that tomorrow we're going to be pumping more. Don't expect even next month or on a couple of months from now. I think that most people think that the first that we can see a reaction from the U.S. shale industry in terms of extra barrels is probably around late summer. Right. Javier, I wanted to ask you about the pipelines from Russia to Europe. Um, obviously, the Nord Stream 2 project was canceled as, as a result of the invasion, but well, if you look at a map of Ukraine, there are a bunch of pipelines going right through headed to Europe. And I can't help but worry um, if somehow they're disrupted, either a, a bomb hits one or the electricity is taken out or the the people who maintain them. You know, I know it's typically not a huge staff needed to maintain one of them, but you do need people to to keep the gas flowing. How big of a risk are these pipelines to um, some sort of disruption because of the war um, and boy, I would I would tend to think that would be a major crisis situation if for Europe, if something like that were to disrupt that supply. What? How are you thinking about that? Well, we are keeping a very close eye on those four pipelines. Is the the main concern of the market are exactly four pipelines. One is for oil, uh, we call it Druzba, and three are for natural gas. It's called Soyuz, Progress, and Brotherhood. And everyone is looking at them. They are um, stations on the border um, between Ukraine and Western Europe. So we can monitor the flows almost on real time on the Bloomberg terminal. And I, I have monitors all the time to try to see the flows there. And surprisingly, nothing has happened. I mean, we are talking about oil and natural gas. That's two things that don't go well with bombs and missiles and so on. And... Two weeks into the war, nothing has happened to them. Incredibly, more gas is flowing through Ukraine today into Europe than it was flowing two weeks ago before before the war started. But if anything were to happen to those pipelines, it would be really, really bad. Druzba on oil, prices will go high and it will be complicated because some refineries, they don't have much option than that pipeline. If we suffer a problem on any of the three natural gas pipelines or, God forbid, on the three at the same time, it's almost game over for natural gas supply in Europe. That will be really difficult. I mean, we can do it, but it will be difficult and super expensive. Natural gas prices will just fly uh, and it will it, they will go high enough that today's super high prices will look like, oh, gosh, do, do you remember when prices were low? Like, that that's the kind of yeah. I mean everyone is super nervous about it. And is there even enough US LNG to to sort of get there in time? No, you you will not be able to 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 supply with with LNG. You, you we will have to adjust the, the hard way. Super high prices. Everyone in Europe trying to reduce consumption, and the industry, the manufacturing industry, energy intensive companies will just simply shut down. That's a scary prospect. I wanted to ask you if you can maybe talk about the consumer aspect here, because we've heard some surveys in the U.S. and also in Europe of consumers saying that they're willing to tolerate 
higher gas prices. But then I'm wondering what you think happens when, when we do actually start to see higher and higher gas prices at the pump and how that plays into all of this. I think that consumers generally uh, understand that facing Vladimir Putin is going to have an economic cause. And they understand that Russia is a big supplier of natural resources, particularly oil and gas. So they, they are expecting that this is going to have a cause. Uh, but we are in the early days of the conflict. And, and the key question is, if this continues and we are three months from now, six months from now, and, you know, let's hope that doesn't happen because the, the human cost in Ukraine will be massive. But if that continues for a long time, I don't know if the public is going to be uh, as accepting as it is now. At the moment, I think that there is a, a, a huge sense of acceptance that this is a price that they are willing to pay. It depends also how high prices go. One thing is that the oil price goes to $120 a barrel. Another thing is that it goes to $175 or $200 a barrel. Um, so that is... And then political leaders are going to have to do a bit of education. They're going to have to address the nation and, and tell them what is going to happen and why we are paying higher prices for gas and, 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 and utilities. Uh, that has started, and we saw President Biden doing a bit of that this week when he announced the the export the import ban uh, on Russian oil. It has not really happened as much here in Europe. It has perhaps happened in, in France, but not elsewhere. And the other thing that is associated with that is that at some point, particularly in Europe, political leaders may need to ask people to conserve energy. Uh, lower your thermostat a couple of degrees Celsius, so you are consuming a bit less natural gas, perhaps making public transportation free on the weekends, so people leave their car at home and take the bus or the underground. There are things that we did, Mike, you, you may remember this, we did this in the 70s. Uh, in some European countries, you could not drive on a Sunday because there, there was not enough gasoline. So there, there are measures that we may need to take but I, I think that if it gets to that situation is when it's just going to be complicated for many politicians. And when I have been speaking to some leaders over the last few days, I can't tell you one thing that it comes on every conversation. No one wants to deliver the famous speech of Jimmy Carter with his cardigan, just basically talking about energy shortages. They think that they have to do that. They lose the next election. So they are very aware that it's not going to be easy. Right, right. I think the I feel like the notion of carpooling was invented in the 70s here and all that. And Vildana, we had those giant station wagons back then. You could fit about the whole baseball team into the back one of those to get to uh, to get to practice. So, um, you know, the, there's always something to some adjustments to be made. Uh, Javier, you know, I was looking at the the oil futures curve and for listeners who are, are not familiar with its typical shape, it's typically what's known as backwardation, which means that uh, oil for immediate delivery or the next couple months is, is typically priced higher than for delivery, say, a year or two from now. Javier, what really caught my eye, though, is I, I looked at the curve and then compared it to where it was a month ago. And the backwardation is obviously extreme now. The, the very near-term prices are way higher than, say, later in the year, next year. But what fascinated to me is looking all the way out to 2028, 2029, um, they're about, I think it was 18 or $19 a barrel higher than they were a month ago for, for that far out in the curve. Now, markets don't always get it right, but it feels to me like 
you know, traders are pricing in sort of a a permanent shift higher, um, at least out six, seven years. I mean, is that reasonable or do you think the markets have it right about that uh, to, to that extent? Or is this sort of just such an uncertain market that, um, you know, you can't necessarily take the market signals for, um, you know, being the best predictor of the future? I think that we need to wait a bit uh, and see how things start to stabilize. I mean, the market has moved a lot in, in really a matter of four or five days. And the back end of the curve, as you, you told, it has also moved a lot. Uh, and it's not very yet clear why it's moving that. I mean, w- one of the reasons is that some consumers of oil, and I'm talking about big companies, have started to panic and they have not covered, they have not hedged, they have not bought insurance for future delivery. And they are beginning to try to say, well, hold on one second, we, we really need to to have a bit of more insurance. And I'm talking about airlines, tracking companies and, and, and similar. And that has really triggered this increase on the back end of the curve because that's where these companies usually buy their, their insurance. So that's one of the elements that has triggered that movement. But I think it's a bit too early to say we have seen a structural shift in, uh, in oil prices to, to the upside. But certainly, as I said at the beginning, even before the war started, the market was feeling really tight. And it was really a sense that prices needed to move higher. Just from the demand side, even. Yeah, mostly for the demand side. I mean, the, the demand recovery has been remarkable. I mean, only a few months ago, we were talking about peak oil demand, and we all were going to be working from home, and that was going to reduce permanently the consumption of gasoline and diesel. And what we have found is that actually some of the changes on the economic structure that they came from COVID may be more energy intensive. We are using a lot more um, deliveries at home rather than going ourselves shopping. And actually that, it, it really increased the amount of gasoline that, that you need to do. I mean, you are getting the ban of the truck to your door with whatever you are buying. I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed myself of the amount of deliveries that I get every day at home. I mean, you know, we right. really need to stop going online and shopping. And, 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 and that really may have really lifted oil demand higher on a permanent basis. Right. And, and then the efficiencies aren't there. You know, you can get three different trucks from Amazon on any given day rather than one one delivery. Exactly. And, and there are other things like, for example, at the moment, I give you my personal anecdote. At the moment, I'm working three days a week into the newsroom and usually work a couple of days at home. So what happened? The newsroom is permanently open. So it means that it's heated. But I'm also heating at home for a couple of days. So we are consuming more natural gas for heating that previously that's in the gas market. They call it double heating. We have not really thought about the impact. But when you multiply that impact for 25 million households in the United Kingdom, that really matters. So what we thought that probably was a permanent drop in, in oil demand actually is resulting on much higher very strong oil demand. And also, a lot of people don't feel yet completely safe using public transportation. So rather than pick up a a plane to fly somewhere a couple of hours, they will rather do this very long or at least long long trip for my European standards uh, and then just drive. Uh, And all of a sudden, you, you have more gasoline consumption. Another big story this week was that the EU said it was going to look to cut about 80%, I think it was, of its gas imports from Russia. I wanted to ask you how realistic that is and how it would actually 
look in reality? Well, as all of these targets, I think that there is a lot of ambition that you set a very high target, so you hope for the best, and then you, you, you kind of settle for something a bit lower. And I think that the, the European Commission put a very ambitious target, and I don't think that they are expecting to have to hit it. But in a way, it very much depends on what happened. I mean, perhaps Europe doesn't have the option. If Russia shuts down the natural gas flow, well, we will have to learn to live with no gas from Russia whatsoever. If those pipelines that we were discussing earlier just get blown up, it's more or less the same thing. So it's possible to achieve, but it's going to be extremely difficult and it will mean much higher prices for a longer period of time. Uh, I mean, Europe at the moment buys still between 35 and 40% of the gas. There is not enough LNG facilities around the world to kind of fill that gap without leaving current consumers of LNG short of, of supply. So very ambitious target, probably unrealistic, but it kind of signals the commitment of, of Europe to try to resolve the problem. And I think that this is one of the biggest changes that we may see long term on gas. I don't think that whatever happens with Ukraine, even if you know a settlement was achieved next week, I don't think that Europe will be ever comfortable relying on natural gas from Russia as it did in the past. That is just, that has changed forever. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Well, along that line of thinking about the the longer term, um, I'm curious what you think about the prospects for nuclear power, because, uh, you know, on one hand, you have this situation uh, that sort of argues in favor of, you know, building more plants uh, at home, being more self-sufficient for electricity generation with, with nuclear. On the other hand, you've got fighting around Chernobyl and the power plant in the south, kind of reminding us all of the dangers of it um, and the risks to it. I, how do you think that balances out and, and shakes out in the future? Is, it, is this whole situation um, good or bad for the prospects of nuclear power? So this is the first time that actually there has been a war on a country with nuclear power, with nuclear power stations, which is you know, um, it's quite shocking. And uh, and again, if I was saying that, you know, pipelines full of gas and oil don't react well with, you know, bombs and, and missiles, nuclear plants even worse. Uh, and, and, and certainly it's worrying a lot of folks in the in the nuclear industry what could happen. Uh, so far, I think that both sides are trying to are aware of the dangers and no one wants to have another Chernobyl. Um but, you know, here in Western Europe, uh, I, I think that has just prompted a huge rethinking about nuclear power. I don't think that countries that were more or less against nuclear power are just about to start building nuclear stations. But the nuclear power stations on those countries that they were 
a target for decommissioning, I think that those are going to run for longer. As long as it's safe and that as long as all the upgrades can be, I think that countries like Germany, Belgium, Spain are going to run the nuclear power plants for longer. France, they said for sure, is going to be building more nuclear power plants. The same thing for the United Kingdom. All of a sudden, even the green parties in continental Europe, which traditionally are against nuclear power, are saying, well, this is not great, but let's be realistic. Uh, we, we really need to reduce our dependence on Russia and, and we really need baseload electricity supply and nuclear, that's it. So for now, we are going to need that. And then just to hit on one more big topic, which we haven't brought up yet, which is cyber attacks. And I'm wondering how the prospect of cyber attacks on, you know, any of these facilities or how are you thinking about it? How should we all be thinking about it? This has been a huge concern of the whole energy industry, not just oil and gas, but utilities. Um, in general, utilities were very worried. The grid, the electricity grid. Uh, and for now, nothing has happened that we know, uh, but really nothing has happened linked to Ukraine or, or Russia. Obviously, last year we have an attack on um, Colonial, which is this big uh, pipeline transporting gasoline, diesel and jet fuel all the way from the U.S. Gulf of Mexico area all the way up to, to the New York area. And that was um, tracked to hackers in, in Russia. So there was a lot of concern that as Russia was invading Ukraine, we was going to see a wave of cyber attacks across the European Union. We have not seen that. The question is, are we not seeing that because um, Russian hackers are not launching the attacks or because the companies have spent a really significant amount of money really building defenses against cyber attacks? And probably it's a combination of both, but uh, it remains a big source of concern on everyone on the industry. And I think that in particular areas like utilities and the grid, the electricity grid, it almost is the main concern that they have. Javier Blas, we are so grateful to get your insights. Javier, the author of The World for Sale, Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources with uh, Jack Farchi. Javier, uh, really insightful. Before we let you go, though, we do have a tradition on this show where before I let you go, we have to hear about the craziest thing you saw in markets this week. I have a, a suspicion what it is, but but tell us what's the craziest thing you saw in markets this week. Well, Mike, uh, I, I, I'm bringing you a treat because it's not the craziest thing that I have seen in markets this week. It's the craziest thing that I have seen in markets on my whole journalistic life, which <laughs> sadly already stands for 24 years. And that was the price of nickel. And nickel is this metal that, you know, used to be a boring market and no one really pay a lot of attention other than, you know, journalists like me and then the people in the nickel market. It used to stainless steel. Uh, but now nickel has another big use that is high efficiency batteries for the electric vehicles. I mean, Tesla has a lot of nickel on every battery. And Elon Musk uh, recently tweeted that one of his main concerns was the supply of, of nickel. So what happened was we have a sore squeeze in the nickel market and the price went just ballistic. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a ton or a metric ton of nickel cost about $20,000. At one point this week, it cost more than 100000 The market went up 250% in two days. 
And the London Metal Exchange here in London, where nickel trades, have to take the extraordinary measure of shutting down the market just to stop the madness. And we don't know when trading is going to restart. It's just going to be shut down for several days. It, it truly is one of the wildest stories. I, I agree with you. One of the wildest I, I think I've ever seen, too. Well, well Donna, did you, have you been hoarding nickel in, in your bunker there? <laughs> no, I haven't <laughs> been. Well, the bunker reference for our listeners is the recording room I'm in. But no, I wish I had been. What a week. <laughs> well, how about you, Voldana? What's the craziest thing you saw this week? I don't know if I want to call it the craziest or the wildest or anything like that, but it's something that just really struck me. And actually, Javier already brought it up. It, it was a story I read in the Wall Street Journal, which uh, the title was Ukrainians risk their lives to keep Russian gas flowing to Europe. So Javier had mentioned that Europe right now is actually importing more Russian natural gas than before the invasion. And there's actually a crew of Ukrainians who are keeping it flowing. And the reason is, and this is why I chose this one, I I was hoping to sort of explain it a little bit and maybe Javier can give us more insights. But the more gas is flowing now because of a deal that was struck actually years ago with Gazprom where customers pay according to the level at which gas traded a month ago, and a month ago prices were lower. It is It is one of the, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's, it's one of the ironies of the war. We we, we, we were thinking that the, the, the gas was going to stop flowing through Ukraine, and actually European utilities are buying more gas from Russia through Ukraine and paying more money to Gazprom, which is ultimately controlled by Vladimir Putin, just because, well, a bit of corporate greed. I mean, it's cheaper for these utilities to buy uh, through the long-term contract with Gazprom, and then they can resell the gas at the spot price, which is much higher. So they are maximizing their contracts with Gazprom in the middle of a war. I call it capitalism in in times of war. Uh, I know that some people will be less sympathetic than than that that, that, that comment. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll give you mine before we go. And this is, um, I think the one thing that has struck a lot of people uh, about this was there have been moments of comic relief. You know, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky obviously started out as a comic actor, and I feel like his spirit sort of trickles down uh, to the rest of the country. Um, For example, there are all sorts of videos of farmers uh, stealing Russian tanks with their trackers, uh, hooking them up on a tow rope and stealing them. To the point where the uh, tax authority in Ukraine issued a statement saying, um, if you steal a Russian tank, you don't have to declare it as income on your on your tax uh, return. But anyway, someone put up a listing on eBay for a used Russian T-72 tank. And uh, I, this was uh, alerted to me by uh, the Twitter user Financial Gambler, who I know is an avid listener of the show. I had actually seen it, but I never thought of it for the craziest thing. Now, it turns out the listing was bogus, uh, according to Snopes. It wasn't a real listing. But I think the fact that many of us were wondering uh, whether or not this was real and and thinking it possibly could be real uh, shows you how crazy uh, things have gotten. But just for fun, even though it's a fake listing, we're still going to play Prices Right uh, because I think it's a reasonable price for a used Russian T-72 tank. Uh, Vildana, what do you think the buy it now price on eBay was for this fake listing for a Russian tank? I can't give. There's no way. I would never. Who would ever consider buying it? <laughs> there's no way I can even come up with a, with a number. 
All right, Javier, what do you think the, the buy it now price for a used Russian T-72 tank should be? I, I, I don't know if it was a T-72, but I have seen one in action, Russian tank in, in, in um, sadly, in the Middle East. So I know how scary they look, and I don't really want to bet. But, okay, if I have to guess, uh, the, the tweet went wild, uh, so everyone will be bidding. Um, half a million? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. 400,000. So you're, you're, you're pretty good. Uh, pretty close. And uh, who knows what it takes to fill that thing up at the pump, though, you know? I wonder oh, that's going to be expensive. I wonder what they must run on diesel, I guess, huh? <laughs> uh, they run on diesel, but you can't... Funny enough, some of those tanks, they really run on almost anything, but you could run them on jet fuel. Almost the, the same the same product as, as you would put on a plane. No kidding. I imagine they're real gas guzzlers, though. I can't imagine they're very, very efficient. They are not going to be cheap. <laughs> So factor that into your price. But again, Javier, uh, such uh, a privilege for us to get your insights at, at this time. And um, uh, I know you've had a busy week, so we, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio. What Goes Up is produced by Magnus Henriksen. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.